0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome all of you who are joining us online. Also, those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus, and those of you who are meeting together at our other campuses in Northwest Calgary, in the South, and uh, in Bridgeland, and also up in Airdrie. You know, back in 1999, I did a series of messages on the book of Revelation, and as you know, interpreting that book filled with all of its symbolism uh, is not an easy task. And so every once in a while, I would tell people to turn to the person next to them and to say, he could be wrong. (laughs) And I was quite serious about that. Well, I want you to keep that in mind, because being the optimist that I am, I am going to make a prediction. Not about the Calgary Stampeders, not about the Calgary Flames, but about the weather. So here it is. I predict that starting today, we are going to have beautiful weather for the next four to six weeks. Now, there may be a day or two here and there a little bit chilly, a few little flakes. But uh, by and large, it's going to be amazingly beautiful. Now, of course, he is God and I'm not. So turn to the person next to you and say, he could be wrong. <laughs> hmm. heard someone say, he's dreaming. Well, okay, but I just had to put it out there, Okay. I feel warmer and better already. All right, here we go. This weekend we're beginning a new series on First John. Now, First, Second and Third John were written by John the Apostle, who is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and also the book of Revelation all under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, of course. Now, when John wrote this letter, he was in his 90s. Uh, and he was the last surviving apostle. He spent most of his later years in the city of Ephesus, providing leadership for most of the churches in Asia Minor, the churches that he actually addresses in the second and third chapter of Revelation, uh, after which he was exiled uh, to the island of Patmos, where it is believed he ultimately died. Now, John gives four reasons why he wrote this letter. And the first one is found in chapter 1, verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. And I will uh, explain that in a few moments. The second reason is found in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. People at that, in that day were misunderstanding the nature of sin and they, of course, uh, were rationalizing away sin. And so he addresses this issue of sin. The third reason uh, for him writing this letter is found in chapter 2 down to verse 26 where he says, I am writing those things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. In other words, he's addressing false teaching in this letter. Now, we come to the fourth reason uh, that John gives for writing this letter. And I want to give particular attention to it. Uh, It's found in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may, what does it say? No, not hope so or think so, but that you may know you have eternal life. Now, John wrote this letter somewhere between 40 and 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there was some false teaching making its way into the church, which not only created confusion, but caused some of the uh, believers to wonder. Uh, what it meant to be a Christian and how they could be certain that they, in fact, were true Christians. Well, 1 John is largely devoted to addressing that question. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading part of this first chapter together. (laughs) That which was from the beginning And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring John to write these words. And we ask, Lord, that you would now um, just soften our hearts, prepare us, Lord, to receive what it is you want to communicate to us. Uh, Focus our minds, uh, remove distractions, and Lord, um, would you give us the courage the insight that we need to do what you're calling us to do. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So have there ever been times in your life as a Christian where you have wondered if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ? Some people hardly ever think about this, while others fret about it constantly and lose a lot of peace and joy over it as well. Well, as I pointed out a moment ago, one of the key reasons that the Apostle John wrote this letter was so that we could know, that we could have the assurance that we do have eternal life. If you have sincerely put your faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting what He accomplished by His grace on the cross of Calvary for your redemption and are cultivating a growing friendship with Him and living in daily humble dependence upon His enabling grace as you follow Him. John says you can know You have eternal life. Not because you're perfect or live perfectly, but because you've put your trust and are in relationship with Jesus, and He is perfect and righteous. In his letter here, John is concerned that we have a full orbed understanding of God's grace, of God's gospel of redemption. And what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that people not be deceived and fall into one of two ditches. That they either would fall into living a life of religious legalism. In other words, it's all about do's and don'ts. And we kind of watch each other and all the rest. And judge each other which describes the church of many years ago. we got to avoid that ditch. Or there's the other ditch on the other side of the road, where we live a life of unbridled license. And so he gives three tests, as it were, uh, that reveal whether or not a person is truly a Christ follower. Now, I decided to kind of frame those tests in the form of three questions. Test number one, what do you believe about Christ? And secondly, how are you living like Christ? And thirdly, how are you loving like Christ? You will see John addressing those three major questions all the way through his letter here in 1 John. And if I were to summarize what John, or how John answers those questions, it would be this. What you believe about Jesus and the way to eternal life is very important. But believing in Jesus is only part of what it means to be a Christian. It is also about knowing Jesus personally and living and loving like Jesus on a daily basis. So with that overview, we begin with chapter 1, verse 1, where John touches on the first question, the first test of the true believer, this matter of what we believe about Jesus. Now, as I indicated, John likely wrote this letter Approximately 40 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means most of the people that John was writing to didn't hear and see Jesus personally or in the flesh. They didn't witness the crucifixion, they didn't encounter the resurrected Christ. They were getting their information secondhand from people who had heard and saw Jesus in the flesh. And consequently, false teachers were infiltrating the church some were questioning the humanity of jesus suggesting that christ wasn't really human that he just appeared to be human and that he just appeared to have a body and that he just appeared to die others were questioning that he was god whether he did in fact rise from the dead all of this and more caused some of the early christians to begin to question their faith. And even the nature of their faith. And so John starts out his letter. By clearly stating that Jesus was the real deal. That he was who he claimed to be. Here in verse 1 to 3. He basically says look. We. And it, by we he's referring to the other apostles. Himself and of course hundreds of others. Who saw Christ in the flesh. We. We want you to know that Jesus really lived. We heard him teach profound truth. We saw him heal the sick. We saw him raise the dead. We saw him calm the storm. We're not making this up. Jesus wasn't some ghost. No. He was a real person with a real body that bled just like ours because we touched him. And we saw him nailed to the cross of Calvary and the blood flow from him. Now the Apostle Peter essentially said the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories... When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now here's the thing. Just as there were skeptics 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are still skeptics today. Many more, I'm sure. Who do not trust the Bible and what it says about Jesus because they believe that the writers of the New Testament, like John and Peter and Paul and so forth, just made it all up in order to build their movement and to consolidate their power. And yet, in addition to the eyewitness accounts of Christ's life and death and resurrection, recorded in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are also a number of secular, non-biblical scholars who wrote about Christ. I have the writings of Josephus in my library. He makes distinct reference to Jesus. Another one is the Roman historian Tacitus. Now, time doesn't allow me to quote them, but there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus walked the face of of the planet over 2,000 years ago. In fact, historian Jay Gilchrist Lawson says, the idea that Christ never existed is not held by anyone worthy of the name scholar. The historical evidences of Christ's existence are so much greater than those in support of any other um, event in ancient history. No candid scholar could reject them without also renouncing his belief in every other event recorded in ancient history. Now, Tim Keller, he goes on to say that if the New Testament writers made up what we read about in, uh, in uh, about Jesus in the Gospels, it makes no sense for them to make reference to the story surrounding the crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion is not something you would want to brand your movement by. Because in that day, people would have immediately concluded that anyone who had been crucified was a criminal. Who wants to follow a criminal? Or why depict their hero, Jesus, agonizing on the cross, crying out that God had abandoned him just before he died? This surely wouldn't impress anyone in that day. In fact, it would have left the distinct impression that Jesus was weak. He was a failure to his God and would have created real doubt about his deity and his ability to save people from the consequences of their sin or from anything else for that matter. Furthermore, if the early Christian leaders made up what we read in the New Testament then why would they present themselves in such a negative light? I mean, if you're going to lie anyways, why not make yourself look good? I mean, why would Peter portray himself denying Christ right at the moment of Jesus' greatest need? I mean, talk about cowardice. Why would James and John include the time that they were arguing over who was the greatest. I mean, if they made it all up, why would they portray themselves as a bunch of petty, jealous, egotistical, self-centered cowards? I mean, why include anything that has the potential of turning people off from trusting and following Jesus? More than anything, if you're making it all up, Why would you die for what you know is a lie? I mean, history tells us that most of the apostles were martyred for their faith. It just doesn't make any sense at all for the biblical writers to have made this up. Now, others believe the Bible was written too long after the events themselves. And over time, myths and legends were added to the biblical account like Jesus' miracles, for example, or they were embellished in order to make Jesus appear more godlike, to make him appear more powerful and greater than he actually is. Well, the truth is, the Apostle Paul's letters were written just 15 to 25 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And they provide a summary of all the events of Christ's life recorded later, a few years later in the Gospels, including his miracles, his claims, his crucifixion, and also his resurrection. Let me give you an example. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians was written... And it's widely accepted as being written no later than around 56 A.D., a little over 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul wrote in the 15th chapter of First Corinthians. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, referring to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living at the time of the writing, though some have fallen asleep. That's not in church, folks. That means they passed away, all right? (laughs) Just want to make that clear. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me also. Now, in those days, you know, people didn't have access to an iPad or a computer. In fact, they didn't have access, very readily access to paper and pen. And so, if they wanted to remember something, they would memorize things. And so the early Christians would memorize certain creeds of their faith. And what they would do is they would gather for church like this and they would recite them together. Or they would sing them together as part of their worship. And they would pass on these creeds, not only to the next generation in their family, but they'd pass them on to the next generation of believers, to believers, new believers that they were mentoring. Well, the words that I just quoted from 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those formal creeds. It was well known. It was being memorized. It was being used in worship services of the early church. In fact, many believe that Paul received that particular creed from James and Peter while he was visiting with them in Jerusalem um, uh, approximately three years after Paul had become a Christ follower, which would mean that that creed was already being distributed and was being used in worship services as early as five years after the resurrection of Christ. All that to say that there is no basis for the claim that the story of Jesus was written hundreds of years after he died and therefore can't be trusted. That just simply isn't the case. The basic truths of the life teachings, miracles, atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were also in print and memorized and well known by thousands of early Christians within a few years after Christ's resurrection. Now that's significant. Because that means there were people still alive who had witnessed firsthand the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, who would know if any of these writings were distorted or these creeds were distorted or if they were wrong or if they were just made up. Let me explain it this way. Suppose I wrote a book on the events of September 11th, 2001. And in my book I wrote that the World Trade Center Towers were not destroyed by two commercial aircraft that were piloted into them. That all the TV footage that most of us and the world saw and continue to see from time to time of those commercial jets flying into the Trade Center Towers, that that really didn't happen. It was all made to look that way. That the reality is, the truth is, the towers were actually destroyed by lasers from alien spaceships. Well, if I wrote that book, chances are it might be a bestseller. But you see, there are thousands of people who would read my book And they would say, that's not true. And the people I'm referring to are the people in New York. They would say, that's not true because I was there. I heard those jets. I saw those jets hit and explode into the trade towers. And what the rest of the world saw on television is the way it was. And you see, the same is true in the first century. Unlike the the, the biography of Muhammad, which was written 125 years after his death, or the records of Buddha, which were written 350 years after Buddha's death, the Apostle Paul, who authored most of the New Testament, he wrote, his writings 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the other gospel writers weren't far behind. Most of them, including the Apostle John, wrote somewhere between 40 and no later than 60 years after Christ's death and resurrection. John was the latest of them. Which means most of the New Testament was written early enough for actual witnesses to verify They were there. As the New Testament writings of Jesus' life and the the apostles' teachings were being circulated around the early churches, as these creeds were being recited, if they were filled with untruths, these people would have called them on it. And I say all that to say this. It would have been impossible in light of that It would have been impossible for this new faith called Christianity to ever get off the ground and spread if what we read about in the Bible about Jesus was all made up. But you see, that didn't happen. The early church of the New Testament record spread like wildfire, despite the fact that it contained many references to miracles, including Christ's resurrection. And that's because there were still enough people living who said, I was there. I heard. I saw. I touched. There were 25 of us there. There were 500 of us there. And here in 1 John, the Apostle John, writing 50 years after Christ's resurrection, says, I know it's true because I was there. And so are many more of us. John says, we we heard Jesus speak. We saw him. We touched him. John really goes on to say, but more than that, we experienced him. We have a relationship with him. Because he's not just human. He's fully God. He's alive. And he lives in us. Notice in verse 1, John refers to Jesus as the word of life. Where else did John use or refer to Jesus as the word? Well, in his gospel. You notice that he started John, the gospel of John the same way he did 1 John. whole bunch of verses before he actually refers to Jesus. And so in the first Verse of John chapter 1, John refers to Jesus as the Word of life. And this is what we read In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, you go down to verse 14, and you know it's Jesus that he's talking about. In the beginning, was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. John clearly stipulates here that Jesus is God. And then notice he goes on to describe this Jesus in verse 3. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Note that word and that life was the light note that word of mankind the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it you see the parallelism what he's saying here and what he's saying in first john john says in him in christ was life and that life was the light of all mankind Back in 1 John chapter 1, he refers to Jesus as the word of life. In verse 2, he refers to him as the eternal life. And what he's essentially saying is, Jesus is God, he is alive, he is life, and he is my life. Knowing and experiencing Jesus, says John, is life itself. To know him is to really live. Many people think that Christianity is all about learning truths and believing truths about God. And that is important, of course. It's basic. But it's more than that, folks. For example, you can hear people tell you that honey is sweet. You can read scientific articles that tell you that honey is sweet. In fact, based on all the evidence, you can even believe that honey is sweet. But you'll never know whether honey is sweet or not unless you taste it. You see, believing honey is sweet is profoundly different than tasting the honey. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Get in relationship with him. Know him. And that's what John's saying here. Look at verse 3. He says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And what's the basis of that fellowship? Our fellowship is with the Father And with his son Jesus Christ. What John is saying is Jesus didn't just live. No. He changed our lives. He spoke into our lives. He encouraged us. He challenged us. He shared his wisdom with us. He pointed us to truth. He corrected us. He guided us. He inspired us. To give our lives to him. We just don't believe in him. No we believe him. We have an ongoing relationship with him and it's our relationship with him that unites us to one another. John says Jesus really lived. He was fully human. He is fully God. We know him. We've experienced him and we want you to know and experience him too. In fact, he says when you know and experience the living Christ the way I do, my joy will be complete. Verse 4. My joy will be complete. You know, when I visited Israel for the first time many years ago, and I saw and experienced many of the places that we read about in the Bible, and where Jesus taught, and where he walked, and where he hung out, It's hard for me to find words to adequately express the impact that that pilgrimage had on my life. My joy was full and overflowing. But my joy was not complete. Do you know when my joy was made complete? When I was able to take my family and hundreds of you over the years to experience Israel as I did. To see the Bible come alive in them, their faith in God strengthened and their walk with God renewed. That's what makes my joy complete and why I continue to lead pilgrimages there. It made my joy complete. I mean, have you ever heard a, a great joke and I mean, you're just on the floor, you're just laughing like crazy. What's the first thing you want to do? You know, who can I tell this to? Right? Can you imagine? You hear a great joke and you can never share it with anybody? And that's what John is saying here, is when you are experiencing the love and the truth and the majesty and the faithfulness and the wisdom and the power of Christ in your life, your joy and your satisfaction in life is going to be incomplete. Incomplete. Until you've told others about Jesus and what he means to you. You want others to know and experience the Jesus that you know and that you love. Not out of some sense of obligation. But because, I mean, you can't imagine anyone missing out on the relationship that you have with with Christ. the first test of a true follower of Christ is this. What do you believe about Christ? Do you believe he's real? That he lived on earth the way the Bible claims? Do you believe that he was fully human and fully divine? Do you believe he's alive? More than that, is he alive in you? Is he your life in the way we've talked about? Are you experiencing Christ personally? Are you hearing him speak primarily through the scriptures, but also once in a while through that still small voice? Are you feeling his presence in your life on a daily basis? Now again, we're not talking perfection here. But we're talking about your life growing in this direction. So what's God saying to you? What's he saying to you right now? And what changes, if any, do you need to make? John goes on in verse 5 to give a second test of a true follower of Christ. How are you living like Christ? Now, we're only going to touch briefly on this section today. We'll look at it more closely next time but John essentially says when you become a Christ follower not only do your beliefs change but so do your behaviors look at verse 5 this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light in him there is no darkness at all if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness we lie and do not live out the truth. John says, let me remind you that God is light. God not only created light, but he is light. Light tells us two things about God and his nature. First of all, light reveals things as they are. Suppose that you're in a, in a, in a, in a room that's totally dark, you've never been in there before, you don't know anything about what's in that room you have no idea what's in there in short you're completely ignorant about that room turn on the light and you will not only be able to clearly identify what's in the room but also where it's located in short when the light is on you're no longer ignorant You know the truth about that room. Now, it's in this sense that light symbolizes truth, while darkness symbolizes ignorance and error. God is light, and He reveals truth to us through the Scriptures. That's what the psalmist was referring to when he wrote in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Furthermore, light symbolizes righteousness. It symbolizes purity and goodness, while darkness symbolizes sin and rebellion against God. Look at what Ephesians 5.8 says. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And then he goes on to basically define what light is. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth and find out what pleases the Lord. John says we need to be clear about the fact that God is light. He is truth. He's holy, righteous, and good. There is no darkness in Him at all. When you see evil in this world, when you see corruption, abuse, greed, hatred, bitterness, none of these come from God. There is no darkness in him. Therefore, says John, if you say, I believe in God, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's alive. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I believe he's my Savior and Lord. I believe he's gracious and loving. In fact, Jesus and me are tight. We're the best of friends. John says, if you claim all of that, wonderful. But if you're walking in darkness, in other words, if the way that you're living your life and the way that you're behaving isn't at all the way Jesus would live and behave if he were you, then John says, you're a liar. You're not living the truth. see, the truth is not just something we know. We want to know the truth. But it's more than just knowing the truth. Truth is something we do. It is something we live. Brian Wilkerson says, if it's true that wearing seatbelts saves lives, it's not enough to simply know that truth. You have to do that truth. You have to buckle up your seatbelt. In the same way, if it's true that every person is created in the image of God, then we'll treat that person with dignity and respect regardless of who they are. If it's true that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then we'll keep them healthy and pure, free from sexual immorality and food and drink that pollutes them. If it's true that everything we have belongs to God, we'll be good stewards of it. We'll hold it with an open hand. We'll live simply and we will give generously as he calls us to. Now sadly, Barna research tells us that when it comes to gambling, a lack of generosity, alcohol abuse, use of porn, sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, and a host of other such things, a lot of people who say they are born again, who say they put their trust in Christ, who say they believe the Bible is God's word, in short, in John's word, those people, a lot of people who claim to have fellowship with Christ, have lifestyles and behaviors that look very similar to those who do not claim to have fellowship with Christ. John says true Christians don't just believe their faith, they live their faith. They don't just hear from Jesus and talk about Jesus on the weekend. No, they live like Jesus all week. Now what might that look like practically, to live like Jesus? Well, not an easy question. I like what Dallas Willard said. Instead of asking the old question that some of us who are ancient used to ask years ago, when we have those little bracelets called called WWJD, what would Jesus do? Instead of asking that old question, he says we should ask, what would Jesus do if he were me? So let me unpack what he's saying with a few examples. Suppose you're an owner of a company. Ask yourself if Jesus were the owner of your company, how would he treat his employees? How would he, how well would he pay them? Would he make unreasonable demands of his employees? Would he insist they cheat and cut corners in order to make more money? how generous would he be with his profits? Or well, let's say that you're an employee of that company. If Jesus were an employee, would he talk behind his boss's back? Would he pad his expense account? Would he do just the bare minimum required? If Jesus were a parent, what kind of parent would he be? What kind of time and attention would he give to his kids? Would he scream at them when they're fighting? Would he pray with them, instruct them in the way of truth? Which movies, television shows, video games, would he allow? Would he even monitor that? If Jesus were a student, how would he treat the other students? Would he laugh with those who are making fun of others? Would he join those who are bullying others? How hard would he study and practice? If Jesus were a husband, what kind of husband would he be? Would he treasure his wife, support her, encourage her, affirm her? Would he give her his full attention, make time to be with her? Would he take her for granted? Would he make her pay for crossing him by ignoring her and giving her the silent treatment for a week or a month? You get the point. Think through your daily life. How would Jesus live it if he were you? And that will just give you a little bit of direction about what it means to live like Jesus. And this is what John's saying. Being a Christian is just a matter of believing what Jesus said. It's a matter of living like Jesus lived. Now, having said all that, I need to remind us of a couple of things. Release a little bit of tension in here. Love you guys. (laughs) First of all, this is something between you and God. Okay? Only you and God really know where your heart's at. It's none of our business, folks, you know, to try to predict or think that we know where someone's heart's at. Only God and us knows where our hearts are at. John wrote this letter and he gave these tests so that we could examine ourselves with God. Not point fingers and pass judgment on others. And secondly, we need to remember that John is not talking about perfection here. He's talking about the direction you are pursuing in your heart with your life the direction you're walking, the commitment you have to grow daily in Christ. It doesn't mean you won't fall. It doesn't mean you won't fail. But when you get back up after you have confessed to the Lord, you keep walking toward Him. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, He's asking each of us, is there a genuine hunger and thirst in your life for righteousness? This word righteousness is so interesting. Just go look at um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. My children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, what? The Righteous One. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus is righteousness. And so in, when, when Jesus, when he gave his fourth beatitude and he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he was really saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for me, Jesus. Not only are we made eternally righteous when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, but if we by faith continue to hunger and thirst to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and be a friend of Jesus, we will be transformed into the image of Jesus and be empowered by him. We will increasingly reflect his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. You see, because of the fall of man in the garden, what we have to understand is that we're broken spiritually, which among other things means we have this deep feeling of emptiness within us. It's a void, It's a longing for fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And some people will fill that void by trusting Christ, pursuing Christ and his righteousness. And Christ fills that void completely if we're serious and receive it. Other people, however, choose to pursue things other than Christ. They're set on going their own way. And when we choose to walk in darkness. When we choose greed and bitterness and pride and hatred and covetousness and sexual immorality and money for money's sake and fame for fame's sake and success for success' sake, sake, all in an attempt to find this fulfillment and satisfaction, to fill this void in our lives, John says we're sinning, we're missing the mark. We're off base. We're walking in darkness. And in the end, we're going to miss God's very best for us. And depending on what we've done with Jesus, we may miss eternity with Jesus in heaven. And so my question in closing is, what are you really pursuing in life? What are you really hungering and thirsting for in this life? What's the direction of your life? What causes your adrenaline to flow? You know, I often have people tell me that they just don't want to put in time. They don't want to go through the motions of their faith. They want their life to count. People tell me, you know, they want to be used by God. They want to make a difference. They, the, the way that the, early, the believers of the early church did People say to me they want to live in the fullness of the Spirit, to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, they want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus in and through their lives. People say, This is what I want. I want. I want. But they often don't want it enough to give their life to it. Their lives are divided. And you can't serve two masters, is what Jesus said. They're hungry and thirsty for lesser things, for the temporary things, for earthly counterfeit gods. And Jesus says, if you really want to know unspeakable joy, and lasting satisfaction. If you really want my resurrection power at work in and through your life, then I need to have all of you. If we want Jesus, if we want all that Jesus has for us, then we must give him all of us. I love the way Billy Graham put it when he said, When we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God in our lives. May it be so, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you please stand for closing prayer? let's open our hands to the Lord and let's just ask those two questions again because you see at the heart of what John is really saying in this passage is that if we never get around to asking these two questions we'll never grow we'll never move we'll never change at least not in the way that Christ would want us to they're tough questions but they're absolutely pivotal to our our walk with Christ so Lord what are you saying to me and what do you ask me to do about it I'm going to ask the prayer partners, if they'd start making their way up here, if you'd like to pray with someone or just talk to someone about anything to do with what we've talked about, or perhaps it's something different, make sure that you do that before you leave. Some of you may just want to, we don't have a service after this, so some of you feel free, just stay where you are, and just keep giving the Holy Spirit the opportunity to talk to you, about these two questions in fact I want to encourage you every week to not just you know flush this after you you know leave here and get in the car but that you go back to it and keep asking Lord Lord what are you saying to me I've got an assignment for you love for you to read 1 John it's not a long book Read it again and again this next week and ask the Lord those two questions. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.